You're listening to the Poetry of Impact podcast, illuminating the unheard stories of today's top leaders in impact with your host, Gino Borges. Welcome back, everyone, to the Poetry of Impact podcast. Today's guest, Jill Sofer. Jill joins us as part of our partnership with Nexus, a global community of over 6,000 plus members founded to unite young investors, social entrepreneurs, and philanthropists. Jill is the founder of Banking for Climate, a new initiative that engages high net worth individuals, families, businesses, and foundations to ask their banks to stop funding fossil fuels. Jill really lays out what needs to happen in these conversations around banking, fossil fuels, and climate so we can actually amplify the movement to critical mass so it actually matters. Plus, Jill owns a ranch in Colorado. How cool is that? So with that, drop in and enjoy the conversation with Jill Sofer. Hey, Jill, thanks so much for joining us today. Welcome to the show. Hey, Gino, how are you today? Thanks for asking, Jill. Excited to be chatting with you today. So, Jill, tell us where you are calling in from. I'm calling in from my ranch outside of Aspen, Colorado, in Missouri Heights area, and it's a gorgeous mountain day. (laughs) Yeah, for sure. Let's start there. Can you sort of give us some background on what it is that took you to Colorado? See, I know when we spoke before, you mentioned that you previously swapped time between Brooklyn and Miami growing up. Seems like two stark different cultures. Maybe give us a little color on what family life was like for you back then and then how it all led to you visiting and eventually moving to Colorado. My father moved to Miami when I was 11 and he loved to ski and he would take us with my parents were divorced at that by that point, and he would take us on ski vacation, and then he discovered the West, and uh, the first time I came out here, I was 14 years old, and we flew to Denver and drove to Aspen, and I had never seen the Rockies before, and my jaw dropped. I had never, I grew up in the East Coast, you know, rolling hills, you know, well-worn with time, and I was just blown away by the splendor, and as a family, we came here for a long time, and then ultimately, I, I couldn't figure out a reason to live here. I couldn't figure out what I would do for a living or work. But later on, I came and I've settled here now. Yeah, nice. So, I mean, what kind of work are you doing there now? Here in Aspen, I do philanthropy largely and banking for climate is you, as you said, we have a ranch with a lot of horses, so there's plenty of ways to spend your time here in Aspen. Um, but when I was living in Los Angeles um, for a long time in New York City, at that point, I was working for the film industry and I was building homes and I did various things that you can do when you live in LA that you can't do at Aspen. So let's talk a little bit about that. How has your family dynamics growing up defined your experience, one? And then also, can you touch on how you navigated this notion of two families across two geographical regions? It's an interesting question for me because, to begin with, my parents were divorced when I was five. And I moved with my mother. Um, my, my father's family is from Pittsburgh. And it's a very, very large and inclusive and fun family. Lots of cousins, lots of aunts and uncles. Um, even before my dad made any money, it was just a very powerful family because of the, you know, the intensity of the group. Um, my mom moved us to Boston area and then New York when she remarried and then back to Boston. So I grew up with, for the most part, I lived with her and went to see my dad on, on weekends. Um, or not on weekends, once a month, you know, because he moved farther away. 
And um, so on one hand, I'd go to Miami or I'd meet people that knew my father. He's a very charismatic person. And so I was a sofa family member. But then when I was living my day-to-day life growing up, I was another kid who had to do well in school and, you know, do chores around the house and rake leaves before I ran ran out the door to go play and, you know, practice the piano. And so I, I grew up in not the, the lifestyle that I might have had I lived with him. So I got both um, experiences. Um, as I grew, I found that, or as I became closer to an adult, I as much as my dad wanted me to move to Miami and join the family business and be part of the group, I found that I wasn't that person inside. So it was always a struggle with me. Like, who am I? I didn't know who I wanted to be yet, but I just know that whatever it was, it was what I wanted, not what, what I wasn't going to be a piece of the group. That wasn't my only identity, the piece of the family. So that was, you know, part of my own um, evolution as I, as I came into adulthood and in the, in my twenties as well. Can you walk us through that edge or the moments a little bit where you're walking these two value systems? Like what came out of that? What has led you to finding yourself right now as a result of having to navigate that situation? When I was 19, um, I had a, I was a, I was a Brown and I, it was the summer between freshman and sophomore year. And I was taking a road trip with my mom and she, we had a car accident and she was killed. So I was suddenly left um, with no mother and no guide for, and she had really been the one in charge of our, you know, like making sure I went to school, making sure I, you know, did well, like holding me accountable. She was the one who held me accountable. And um, so it was a bizarre moment because I suddenly had money and no accountability. You know, my father didn't give money endlessly, but you could pretty much get whatever you want. And at the time, my needs weren't huge. Um, so there was, I was like, you know, went back to school a couple weeks later and I could do whatever I wanted, uh, which had was, as you can imagine, for a 19-year-old, was a very mixed blessing. So it took me a couple of years in and out of school. I moved to New York, dropped out, moved to New York. I worked to try and... Um, figure out a how to deal with the you know internal you know emotional crisis of losing my mom so suddenly in such a drastic way as as I was dealing with the question of who am I and where am I going to be when I grow up because I had no I didn't have any reason my, I, my mom had been living in Boston I now had no family in Boston I had you know very nothing in New York like that the whole half of me was gone in a lot of ways I had an older sister but she was traveling so um you know, I didn't, it was, so it was really up to me to figure out how to put the pieces together at that stage in life. Um, I could have, my dad wanted me to move to Miami and, you know, get a tan and, you know, do a better job with my hair or, you know, like it was the Miami look is very, Miami was particularly at that time, a very superficial culture. Um, and it just didn't feel right to me. Uh, so I ended up staying in New York. I finished school. I, you know, I dropped out, moved to New York. I finished school. I actually became a singer um, an opera singer with an avant-garde operas for a while until I moved into working for a film producer and explored very creative, you know, various creative entities. But, you know, I wasn't getting famous. I wasn't making a ton of money. You know, I think somehow in my head, I thought that's what would define me. But I was doing the work on myself to find out who I was, um, despite what the, probably the easier pull would have been. It would have been easier on the outside and harder on the inside. I could have moved to Miami. I could have worked with the family. I could have gone to lunch a lot and, you know, been, you know, gotten, you know, Miami's a pretty small town. We were big fish in a small, in a small pond. 
So I could have, it could have been easier for me, um, but it wasn't right. So I just had to make, keep on making the choices that felt right inside. Even though a lot of times it was really sad for me. I, you know, I, I wanted to be part of the big group. And I, you know, I love my family. I really do. But it just didn't, it wasn't, there wasn't anything. If I moved to Miami, I knew I would just, wouldn't feel right. So use the word right. That things either feel right or they don't. Help us understand what right actually looks like. And how do you know? I would say right feels like having conversations and taking action and doing things that feel that they are authentic, you know, that I really have my heart in them. Um, I was very, pretty involved in the arts at that time. I was not as much involved in like, I don't know. I don't, it's hard for me to have this conversation without sounding pejorative about Miami, but I'll just say sort of the focus when you're in, you know, of the Miami culture, particularly at that time, we're talking the eighties and it's true now too, is overtly, um, um, external, you know, looks, money, flash, fashion. Um, you know, that's like, you know, Oh, where'd you get those earrings? You know, the, the, the conversation centers around, um, that it'll, you know, a lot of people get married you know, people, people, do, people lead more conventional lives. So, you know, they get married, they have children at a certain age and then they talk about their kids all the time. And I just, that just wasn't who I was. So when I say right, it's like, maybe it's right for someone else, but it wasn't right for me. And I think that's the biggest takeaway of it all was even though I couldn't find, it wasn't like I was consciously looking for an answer when it came to making big decisions. I was authentically measuring them as to the kind of conversations I wanted to have, the kind of people I wanted to be around and the kind of work I knew I wanted to do eventually. Does that make sense? Oh, yeah. I, didn't worry. I didn't have a specific goal, but I just could tell where I would not fit in. How does that say? Like, it wasn't like I knew for, knew exactly why, but I knew. Hmm. So can you talk a little bit more about that profound experience of the loss of your mother? And now looking back, how has it shaped you over the years? I think actually... Um, you know, I'm sure you, I don't know if you have children yourself or, you know, growing up, but you spend a lot of time in your late teens and early 20s fighting with your parents. And I actually no longer had someone to fight with. So it kind of turned the beam. I couldn't like, the beam wasn't on her. It was turned around to me. So that was tough. It was, it was actually really tough. But, you know, that's what you got. That's what you got to do. Yeah. So I couldn't, I couldn't deflect and blame or, you know, like, oh, my God, my mom's making my life so tough, you know, because, you know, I because I, it was so she wasn't there to make it tough anymore. So since it was so sudden, has that influenced your sense of time at all? Very much so. Very much so. It really has influenced my sense of time. It has influenced my sense of, um, you know, in, in uh relationships and work and and you know i have a lot of animals here on this ranch you know death is no does not mean an end to me um i'm not a particular i'm definitely not a religious person i would say i'm a spiritual person so i know that death comes and it can come at any time in fact we just lost a close friend at the age of 41 last week you know kayaking doing what he loved um and i'm not as um i think i'm i'm more forgiving of that transition i also know that it's the only life we're getting that we know about. And so we better make the most of it. So yes, it has definitely influenced my sense of time. 
So it sounds like you're making the most of it. You're out there in Colorado with a big ranch, taking care of a lot of things, animals, horses, pasture. I don't know if you knew this, but I'm actually from a ranching family myself. And remind me where you're from again. Was it the Midwest? Yeah, it was actually in the San Joaquin Valley of California. Oh, that's right. That's right. And you're living in Nevada now. I know that. So where are you at now that you have these land-based experiences in Colorado on your ranch while simultaneously taking on this large initiative against the extractive economy and so forth? Help me understand how being on the land has actually helped you cultivate the vision for this project. And perhaps you can give us a little bit more background on the initiative as well. So I, I, we haven't quite touched on the fact that I grew up in Massachusetts. Um, I grew up in Western Massachusetts playing in the woods a lot. And so I, you know, when I was a kid, your mother would say, you know, see you later and you'd come back four hours. And so we later, it was, there was no, no one had cell phones or like, and, we, we really did play in the woods a lot. I went to high school in Concord, Massachusetts. So we hung out at Walton Pond in the off season and, and a lot of those, those like those little ponds in Massachusetts that are hidden in the woods. So I had a really close um, relationship with nature from when I was very little. I really loved being there. That's where I see my playground. So coming out here, segueing to um, Colorado, um, I can see the devastating effect that climate change is having on our land and on our winters. I'm living living here, you know, year after year, I see the warming, I see the erratic weather, I see the dryness. And we had fires in our backyard um, two out of the past three summers, um, one literally in our backyard over the hill. We were on pre-evacuation the entire summer. We had to evacuate at one point, got back in, and then the fire blew up. We had a huge party for all the firemen, and then the fire just blew up maybe less than a mile from us and stayed on that hilltop the entire summer until the snows came. So the urgency has definitely increased. Um, I also have, a because of my relation, because I love the land so much and my relationship to nature, I am not particularly excited with, um, you know, all the, the, the technological fixes for climate change that are touted. In fact, I don't really believe that they're going to fix us unless we stop destroying our planet what we were given as a planet to begin with, which is why we're focusing on fossil fuel extraction and stopping, stopping, ex- you know, continued expansion of the fossil fuel industry. There is no path to net zero um, without stopping, you know, without without stopping that. I mean, it's like you can't go on a diet and lose twenty pounds if you're still parking yourself in front of the chocolate cake all day long. It just doesn't yeah. actually work. <laughs> Shocking, but true. So I see, I mean, in some sense, um, I believe very much in nature-based solutions, and we can talk about that because we're actually doing some carbon sequestration projects on this property right now. Um, But in terms of the banking, it's really about, like, stopping the bleeding. And, you know, I founded this initiative with Rebecca Mursky, my foundation partner, and we, when we, and we started out, you know, in the, in the philanthropy world, you know, fundraising for climate and democracy, and then we realized, wow, there are people who have, like, peer relationships with their bankers, and they could actually go sit down at dinner and talk to them. It's not like it's, you know, Jamie Dimon is, or, you know, Larry Fink aren't, you know, you know, miles and miles away in a glass tower. They're actually their neighbors or their, you know, their, their kids go to school with their kids. And, you know, there's, there's actual humans who have relationships with other humans and coming from the world I come from, as well as, you know, living in Aspen and Miami, I see that um, it's, it's only a degree or two of separation. It's not that big of a deal. Um, So I, so that's, 
<clears throat> kind of what's formed my view. There's the nature-based solutions as well as like, let's stop the bleeding. So that's interesting. I want to stick with this for a bit. Where did the financial awareness around the necessary financial mechanism come from? And the reason why I ask is because most people don't recognize that connection. I have to, you know, give credit, obviously, where credit is due. Bill McKibben's piece um, in The New Yorker that came out in the fall of 19, uh, right before Climate Week in New York, where he's, you know, money is the oxygen upon which the world is burning, was pivotal um, in inspiring us. And, um, you know, he's just a very direct um, writer. And, he, you know, he doesn't mess around. He doesn't, you know, get it into, like, numbers. and so It's very logical. It's like, well, this worked in South Africa, and we don't have a lot of time. So if you really want to do something, this is what needs to happen. They have started Bill's 350.org and other um, uh, other green um, NGOs have started Stop the Money Pipeline. It's a coalition of you know green NGOs with Sierra Club, which I'm on the board of Sierra Club Foundation, um, Rainforest Action Network 350. They have started a grassroots campaign to pressure J.P. Morgan, the worst the worst funders and supporters of the fossil fuel industry, JP Morgan, Liberty Mutual, because you can't do any project without insurance. And then BlackRock is an asset manager who has the most investment in these companies. Um, and that's awesome and great. And it's important because they're getting the story out. Um, we saw our role as being a, like I said, as a peer-to-peer model, like people who could speak directly to the people who are letting this happen. Um, we also felt um, so you're asking about, so it was Bill McKibben who, who, um, inspired the financial advocacy. And I think it's also with my awareness from being around my family and the people around my family, that money's kind of what makes the world go round. I mean, that's, that's a common quote unquote, common knowledge, but on a deep, um, on a deeper level, if you really want to stop something, stop the money. It's like if you have a kid who's a drug addict, drug addict, what do you do? You stop giving them money and it's real hard for them to buy drugs. And I actually make the equivalent, you know, the comparison quite often because I, you know, do think that um, the enabling of the fossil fuel industry to continue to wreck our planet is is not so great. You know, I think I think I do think it is immoral. Actually, at this point in history, it is immoral. So when someone considers something immoral and they see that action continuing, it becomes really hard to swallow. There's lots of frustration comes up, starts to emerge. So I'm curious, how do you stay optimistic and committed even when things aren't moving fast enough or you'd like to see them otherwise? So unfortunately, you know, uh, until as the movement grows, I mean, the, the movement needs to continue growing because it is slow. And, you know, what can you do? You can, I mean, you have to keep going. You don't, we don't really have a choice to stop. Um, it will be slower if we stop. So it's just about, it's about waiting for, for it, you know, and at, I mean, even look at climate, we had four years of Trump and now we have Biden and all of a sudden, like, everybody's talking about climate change, whether as if it just showed up last week and it's, it's actually been around for a while and it's been a problem for a long time. So finally, it's okay to talk about climate change. So, you know, s- slow is what it is. And, the, and I do think, you know, I do hope and believe we're at a tipping point. I feel, unfortunately, that that's partially because we've had so many incredible climate crises, like the fires in the West and our, our Australia and heat waves everywhere, like in crazy places. So people are getting it, you know, without having to be told. 
Um, so the way we see our initiative is we we kind of believe that the people who work, you know, who run these, you know, the banks and the corporations and the people of wealth are actually human beings. And it's really not that they're bad people or that I think it's just that they've been trained to look only at dollars as opposed to the larger picture. Um, you know, you talked about people, you know, leaving, losing money by leaving it in the ground. And it's actually not necessarily the case because, you know, you may win money short term. The only people who are actually going to, you know, who appear to be losing money would be the actual people in the fossil fuel industry. Um, banks would lose money on the, um, on their interest rates, you know, on the, they get paid fees for the actual loans. Um, but, they're not even they are now seeing that they can invest more and more. This, this, I believe, I just read something last night in Bloomberg. This is the first time that there is more the banks, American banks, are investing more in sustainable initiatives than they are in the fossil fuel industry so far in this year. So that's a huge change. They're still investing in the fossil fuel industry, which brings me back to my you know analogy that I just brought up about the diet like, you can't do both and expect to get anywhere. Seems like common logic to you and me, but people don't like to have that pointed out. Um, We're really, you know, we think our sweet spot is talking to people and treating them like people and not bad guys and not criminals because they have an extra plane or an extra house or whatever. Um, But just to think more, you know, 360 about about like, you know, where they want to see their lives on this planet in 10, 20 years. I think it's easy to um, dull the pain or dull the anxiety by, um, and I believe banks do this, by saying we're making a net zero commitment by 2050. Well, 2050 is a long time away, so we'll keep, we're going to keep on you know, expanding fossil fuel infrastructure tomorrow. Um, because 2050, we already made that commitment and we feel better, we can sleep at night, but you know, tomorrow we're going to go out. We haven't quite figured out how to do that yet. We're going to run a lot of reports. But tomorrow we're going to keep on doing business as usual. And I think our role is to go, well, wait a minute. These two actually don't go together. You can't you can't um, make a net zero commitment by 2050 and continue fossil fuel expansion because it just doesn't work on paper. You know, you gotta you gotta start thinking about this. So um yeah, people are complicated. It's tough to, you know, you know, look for change and for preserving the planet because you depend on people. But where else are we going to go? You, know, you need you need to has to be from there. How do you find the bankers? First, second, how do you find the families who are willing to connect with their bankers and sort of walk us through what this actually looks like in a real life situation of how banking for climate actually works? So what's exciting, I'll answer your second question first. We find people because we already have a lot of friends and we've already had, we have a big network in philanthropy world. We sit on a couple of different donor tables like Solidaire, Foundation, Solidaire um, um, organization where people are really committed and they are committed to, you know, donating to this frontline group and that gr- group for environmental justice or social justice or LGBT, whatever, you know, be it, you know, racial or LGBT. Q um, justice. People are really committed to seeing an even world where people we can all live happily ever after. We um, we meet these wonderful people, and then we say, well, you know, you're given say you're given like you know fifty thousand dollars to this frontline community to fight a pipeline, but your you know your two hundred million dollars is sitting at a bank that's funding the pipeline. Like, wouldn't you rather like pick up the phone or wouldn't you also like to pick up the phone and call the bank and tell them you have a problem here that they're using your money to fund that pipeline, which is what we've done. 
And people were really excited to A, learn about that contact. B, we're not asking people for money at this point. We're asking them to use their voice and their power. We don't have a minimum of how much money you have to have in a bank because, frankly, someone who cares a lot and is willing to speak up is worth as much as someone with, if not more so than someone with a billion dollars who won't say a word. Um, so we're looking for advocates and passion, people who are passionate. Um, those people know other people, and we are being introduced. The Nexus community has been phenomenal. There's a lot of people doing another another uh, place where we're meeting people. Let's see, is um, uh, the Nexus community has a tremendous amount of people who are working in impact investing right now. I mean, as you know, a lot of young people of wealth, or even you know, any you know, yeah, largely young people of wealth, are doing a lot to find the technology or to invest in the technology that will fix a piece of this problem for us. All of which is valuable. Um, we, ha I cannot tell you. I mean, I'm, I'm not sure how many personal stories I want to share, but people who are working on like ESG platforms who want who who could do so much better if they're working with the banks, but the banks don't, you know, have their you know very slow to move to to um, broaden their own, what they can offer people. So that's, you know, that's a little bit of a side story. Um, but people are, I will say they get quiet when I point out that their wonderful green technology made out of seaweed or garbage or whatever, that, whatever it is, or whatever money they're, they're pouring into some alternative, um, you know, energy source or material source is going to go nowhere as long as the fossil fuel industry has that and has energy wrapped up. So if you think about fossil fuel industry has been getting subsidies for over 100 years, they have a mature technology, they have mature political um, and corporate relationships, very mature political relationships, and they dump a lot of money into politics. Um, as long as they have a stranglehold on the energy field, all the, all the impact investing in the world goes nowhere without um, you just can't you, you got to get how are you gonna open that market up they've got it they got you they got it covered they get subsidies they provide cheap oil they have infrastructure it's all there so when we talk to people young people who are hoping to change the world with amazing ideas and amazing financial um resources and we say um you know hey you know someone else is you know there's 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 an elephant in the room here like how you got to deal with that they start nodding their heads and go oh yeah like they start to see that you can't just wish the fossil fuel industry away, nor can you wish away fossil fuel expansion, which will continue to keep us all locked in. So what I hear you saying is that you have this network and these families come to you and you have these conversations with them and then they go to their bank. Is that correct? Well, I want to add one thing. A lot of people have come to us and say, you've got to talk to my cousin. You know, we work with another other networks we work with is resource generation. We're, we're talking to them. We're talking to, you know, we, we're part of one for democracy. We are authentically part of a lot of philanthropic tables and we meet like-minded people there. Um, this is where we're starting. Ultimately, our goal is really to work with people who, who are not as educated in this field. Um, one of the things that inspired Rebecca and I from the beginning going to Miami is the inordinate amount of wealth down there that people are have and are spending, in, a lot of it in real estate, including my family, but they are the front line of the climate crisis, the front lines. I mean, everyone will tell you Miami's going first. South Florida is going to be gone by 2100 if we keep, you know, the, I've seen the maps, you know, it's like literally gone um, if we keep this going. And there's, you know, all they think about is building a bigger seawall. They do nothing to forestall or to slow it. Or it's, it's, it's really an interesting, um, 
psychology going on there. And we talk a lot about piercing that veil, um, you know, piercing, you know, bringing people, we want to bring people along who don't know where to start and don't understand how much this means to them. So I think that that will be our, our second tier at this stage of the game, Rebecca, and I do a lot of listening to people and trying to understand how they think the way they think. And one of the things we hear a lot is that, well, you know, technology will save us. We'll figure it out. You know, somehow we'll figure it out. Like there'll be the, either the seawall or the pumping the streets or, you know, I don't know, you know, there's always the scary ones like geoengineering and the like, but, you know, people somehow think that that stuff will work. I'm curious, what do these conversations with the family actually look like? Are they asking you to actually come with them to the banks to have these banking conversations? Or are you educating them beforehand on what to ask for? Just curious on how this whole sort of dynamic actually works. We do both. We've offered to be in meetings. We've actually had bankers say that they don't want us in meetings because they know about us. Uh, but we've offered. We also we also educate people and give them talking talking points to make it easy for them. Uh, one of the things that comes up often is people don't feel educated enough to talk about it. Uh, you know, as you can imagine, bankers or any industry would want to reel you into statistics and and you know numbers and the like. And we say stay away from all that. That's not. That's not helpful, interesting, or going to get you where you want to go. Mm-hmm. We we are very kind of, you know, I'm not going to say simple people, but we we um, you know we're we're pretty ta- you know tangible. You know, we like we like to have a tangible conversation about real stuff. We don't want to hear greenwashing, so we just say, you know, fossil fuel expand expansion. It's it's not going to work. Um, and like I said earlier. The recent International Energy Agency report, you know, accentuated that they are a fossil fuel advocacy group, and they made it really clear in their report a month ago that there is no path to net zero without stopping expansion now. Let's say you and I had this conversation, and then I walk into my bank. What am I actually going to ask them for? I'm trying to get a sense of how these banking conversations go. So first of all, our, our initiative is very new, and we're starting on, on bringing together our advocates. But besides that, we have had conversations with the banks. Largely, what we've done so far is have have our members, we draft them a template letter, they fill in whatever personal stuff they want, how long they've been at the bank, who their wealth manager is. They send it along. The wealth manager tends to bring in higher, you know, people who are higher up the chain. Um, we've had a communications person. We have the head of sustainability. I'm at, you know, B of A. I'm at Merrill Lynch slash B of A. I've talked to people in the sustainability department. Um, they, we've asked people to focus on a project. We feel that a project is better for our people for to wrap their brains around, and it's better for it's easier for the bank to have. It's just a tighter conversation, something tangible. And up until now, we have focused on line three. Um, just so you, in case you or your listeners aren't 100% aware, Line 3 is a tar sands pipeline that is being called a replacement uh, pipeline built by Enbridge, um, running from Alberta, Canada to Lake Superior, Wisconsin, I believe, Lake Superior. And it goes through Minnesota. And it's going through um, Ojibwe tribal lands, tri- treaty-protected waterways, over 200 waterways, um, marshes where they were they harvest their sacred rice. I mean, it's a nightmare. It is as bad as Dakota Access Pipeline threatens their waterways because, you know, you know, just to be clear, oil spills and it always does and it always will. I mean, there are always oil spills and Enbridge has been responsible for two of the worst in history. Um, so they are right to want to protect their way of life and what matters to them. And these are these are treaty protected lands and and you know the 
go to the Minnesota government, federal government's just saying, sure, you know, run the pipeline right there. You know, it doesn't matter what they think. So we are having people um, write about specifically about line three. Tar sands, it gives off 50, this pipeline will add additional um, additional carbon in the air of 50 coal plants a year. It's a, you know, it's a, it's um tar sands are the most egregious of all fossil fuels in terms of carbon emissions and and other pollution too, water pollution as well. Um, and then, you know, it's also, um, it's also violating Native American rights and potentially their ability to harvest and hunt where they've been harvesting and hunting for, for since time immemorial. So you have, you have these banks. So let's just say we go to JP Morgan or um, Bank of America. W what's happening is several banks get together and create a syndicated credit, credit facility. Uh, it's just a straight line of credit to Enbridge. And that line of credit, say for like $2.1 billion, and they can do whatever they want with it. They can build a new pipeline. They could probably build a wind farm if they wanted. That's not something they've wanted to do thus far. Um, but, and so it's, it's, they're not, the banks aren't monitoring what happens with that money. We're saying, and at the same time, the banks are making these pledges, for example, with the recent, you know, the recent, you know, um, focus on you know social injustice and economic you know injustice among races. They're saying, and we're going to be investing. I think J.P. Morgan and B of A just made recent big announcements that they're going to be investing some trillions of dollars. I don't have the number in front of me in communities and in and in economic justice. So we're like, well, that's great, but you're saying that on one hand, but on this hand, um, and then climate resilience and all that other stuff. Um, you're saying that on one hand, on the other hand, you are um, investing in this pipeline that is, you know, a travesty for Native Americans. So we actually, when we have our conversations with the banks, on the other hand, we're saying on one hand, you're making this promise that you're going to, that you're investing all this money, you're pledging all this money to invest in communities and climate and all this other stuff. And on the other hand, um, you are funding this pipeline, which is doing the exact opposite. And these are the kind of conversations we have. We focus on one project that is, um, you know, particularly bad and um, you know puts it kind of like puts a name to the a face to the name um, and makes it more human I think it's really important a big part of our role is to make the whole fight more human and to stay out of the numbers planet did that help at all yeah for sure I want to wrap up with the following I want to come full circle this work that you're doing now does it feel right you know earlier we talked about our work needing to feel right and so that's the question I have for you. How has this work actually helped you feel right? Well, I think that's a great question. And I think I can see now all your, all your questions in this past, you know, 40 minutes has have kind of led to this, which is that I grew up, you know, learning, you know, loving nature and playing in nature and the, feeling very strongly the importance of a having it in my life and that it should be in everyone's life and that it needs to be protected um, and in some of my previous incarnations, I have worked um, on it. You know, I was, a, for example, when I was a designer and a builder, I would try and do environmentally friendly things, but I never felt like my impact was really enough. Um, uh, this bank work is kind of bringing all the parts of me together because, uh, you know, saying that I, I come from a, a particularly wealthy business family from Florida makes me appear to the other people who can also be effective. So it enables Rebecca and I to bring together this group. So another thing that's on my mind a lot is what is the value of your money anyway? Do you need more stuff? Do you need more jewelry? There's nothing wrong with jewelry. There's nothing wrong with vacations. I'm not, we're not here to judge at all. And we're, and 
know, one of the things we haven't talked about is this whole emphasis on the carbon footprint, which keeps the judging of other people is what keeps them out of the fight. But I, you know, we have, we have influence and we have power and I'm willing to step up and, and use my family name to, um, to have that influence. And I want to encourage other people of my generation and younger who did not make their own money, but inherited their wealth to also step into their power and use it for good. Because it's it's not just the dollars that are valuable. It's our position and that we've been given and, and the opportunities we've been offered that allows us to advocate for what we believe is right for everybody. Jill, where can people learn more about you? So right now, we currently have our website, Our Part, up. It's our-part.org is our website. And we are in the process of building our Banking for Climate website. So that'll be up soon. But if you were to email me or Rebecca directly, and my email is jill, J-I-L-L, dot sofer at our part, at our-part.org, we would be happy to respond as quickly as we can. It's jill.sofer, S-O-F-F-E-R, at our-part.org. Thanks so much, Jill. Thank you, Gina. It was great talking to you. Thank you so much. Hey, everyone. Thanks again for listening in to today's conversation on the poetry of impact. The podcast exists for and because of listeners like you. Be sure to subscribe to the Poetry of Impact podcast on your favorite podcast player. And if you have time, leave us a review. Thanks again and goodbye for now. Till next time. Thank you for listening to the Poetry of Impact podcast. For show notes and additional resources, visit poetryofimpact.com.